Hey, we started a series last week dealing with gospel unity and the answer to confusion. We're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, and we talked last week. And by the way, if you missed that sermon, you can hear it on our website at fogkc.com. So you can hear it there and just kind of an introduction in the first few verses that we looked at last week. But we talked about how gospel unity is really the answer to the problems that the church in Corinth was going through. And it's also, I think, the answer for us. One of the things that we saw in those first verses last week, that Paul was very adamant about the fact that this is not, he's just not writing to the church at Corinth, but the churches at Corinth and also to churches all over the place. So this is a normative passage. Uh, Now, while we will see some passages that are dealing specifically with this church and and kind of the application of the principle, all of the principles we see in this book are normative, which means they account for every church everywhere at all times. And so we're going to take a look today at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And the title today is called The Gospel Unites with Power. And we're going to see, even in this first issue that Paul writes to the church at Corinth about, uh, he's going to talk about how uh, the gospel and being focused on the gospel unites the church and gives them power. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Then we'll come back and we'll look at it uh, kind of verse by verse. Here's what it says. Paul writes to the church and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Before that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." And so we see here that he's talking to them about um, really a division that's taken place because they're following different leaders and there's this schism that's happening uh, in the church that's dividing them. And look what Paul does first. He calls for unity in mind and judgment. Listen carefully again at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, I like the way Paul does this. He doesn't begin with a correction about the divisions. He doesn't begin by scolding them, but he, he starts in a very positive manner. It's an exhortation to be unified. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm begging you guys. I beseech you. I appeal to you. Uh, uh, you know, stay together. In the name of the Lord, stay together, have the same mind and the same judgment. So we just mentioned a few minutes ago, today starts the NFL season. Now, I'm not going to tell you uh, which team that you should root for, but it's biblical for us to all be of the same mind on this, (laughs) as we see in this passage, especially if you are formerly or a recovering Raiders or Bronco fan, okay? Okay. Now listen, 
In all honesty, folks, Paul's not talking about this kind of stuff. He's not telling the Corinthian church or us to agree on everything. I know if you look at it on the surface, it says, hey, just be in agreement on stuff. But, but he's not saying, listen, agree on everything. We, we couldn't possibly get all of you to agree to having the same color. It, just, it would never happen. So if that's not what he's talking about, what is he talking about? Well, he says in the passage, I want you to have the same mind and the same judgment. Now, it's important for us to understand what those mean. If we don't know what it means to have the same mind, and we don't know what it means to have the same judgment, and it can't possibly mean that we all agree on everything all the time, what does it mean? Well, let me just share with you. Being of the same mind, what this phrase means is it means that we should have the same outlook or perspective on life. If we are followers of Jesus and believers of the same gospel, we should kind of see the world in a pretty similar manner. Now, it doesn't mean that we all agree on who to vote for in the next election or, or what uh, to do on every single topic. We may not all like the same NFL team, but we should all agree that the NFL season is not as important as sharing the gospel. It's not as important as worshiping the one true God. It's certainly not as important as being loving, forgiving, and merciful, and generous people. You see, we can have the same perspective on life while not agreeing on every individual specific thing. Our worldview should be shaped around the cross and the word of God. And what's interesting is the more mature we are and the more we understand and implement God's truth in our lives, the more same mind we should be. Now think about it. If being Christ-like, if being like Jesus is the goal, and we're all out here with all of our different opinions and all of our different ways, all of our different experiences, the more we become like Christ, the more we'll be close to each other. The closer that we'll have the same mind, we'll be of the same perspective and the same worldview. Having the same mind means that we need to just agree on the big things. Having the same judgment is also not a qualifier for agreeing on everything, but being, it means to be being consensus with things of importance to the body, having the same judgment about things. Now, a great example of this in the Bible is when in Acts chapter 1, the apostles and the 120 followers of Jesus, the 120 saints that it talks about there, were in complete agreement to select Matthias as a replacement for Judas among the apostles. If you don't know the story, after Judas uh, had betrayed Jesus, and Jesus had gone to the cross, Judas went out and killed himself. And so the apostles said, we need a replacement. Uh, the, Jesus chose 12, we need 12, we need a replacement. And so they came together and 120 of them all agreed of the, they had the same judgment to choose Matthias as the replacement. Now listen. If you have any kind of, of experience dealing with uh, groups of people and making decisions, I don't know how you can possibly get 120 people in a room to agree on something. I mean, you know, it can be hard sometimes with five. You know, you and your wife can't maybe agree on sometimes on, on uh, or your husband may not agree sometimes on where to go to dinner. Two of you can't agree. How are we going to get 120 to agree? What it means is not that they all had the same exact opinion. They didn't take a secret ballot vote and everybody put Matthias on their secret ballot. That's not what it's saying. 
What it's saying is that when they came, they talked about it, when they came to the conclusion that he was the guy, everybody was in consensus. Everybody was like, yeah, we know Matthias. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's been a follower of Jesus. Yeah, we should choose him. He's great. Everybody was on board. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's nice to think about in theory, but does that really happen? Does that really ever happen in real life? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. When Fellowship of Grace was still a church plant meeting in a school, uh, we came here to New Covenant Baptist Church, the, the church that was on this site, and we used this church for 10 weeks during the summer because the school was replacing the air conditioning. At the end of that time, uh, we began talking. The church uh, that was here was down to about 20 or 25 people. And we began to talk. And a few months later, both congregations voted unanimously to merge. Now, there's a great example of having consensus, of all of us having the same judgment. When this church decided to add on to the building and just you know, recently finished that, when we voted to do that, the entire church voted unanimously both to do it and the plan to do it. So again, we see total and complete consensus. Did everybody go home and draw up their own plans and we came together and, ooh, look, a miracle, they're all the exact same thing? No, of course not. That, that just wouldn't happen. But what did happen was when we got together and we saw uh, the plans, we saw how God was leading us together, we all said, wow, that looks good. That looks really good. In, in musical terms, because as a musician, I think in musical terms a lot, what Paul's saying here, if this makes sense to you, that when we sing, we all don't sing the same song in unison, singing the same notes at the same time all the time. What he's saying is we get together, we sing the same song in perfect harmony with one another. In other words, we may be singing different notes together, but as you may know, in a choir or a quartet or whatever, when everybody's singing even a different part, but they all go together. They all fit together. There's a consensus of what it's, and it's a beautiful sound to hear a song with many parts instead of just one uh, single melody. So being of the same mind and the same judgment means to have the same outlook and the same perspective on life and to be agreeable in the process of making decisions. That's what he's telling them to do here. Now, uh, just as a little bit of background, our church has four elders. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, everybody just goes along with what Pastor Michael says. That ain't true, okay? Let me just tell you, I know it may look like we're all together all the time because we're wise and, and we don't want to provide Satan an opportunity to tear this church apart. For instance, if we got together and uh, let's say uh, Pastor Christopher and I thought it would be really awesome to paint the sanctuary bright chief's red until the end of the season, till the Super Bowl party, okay? which will be the next Sunday I wear this, by the way. And Pastor Derek and Pastor John said, no, no, guys, that's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep it the same as it is. So what do we do? It's two to two. Okay? I mean, how do we work that out? We, we have to have a consensus somehow. By the way, the elders of this church have never voted in almost 14 years now. We have never voted on a single thing. We are always of consensus. Now, there's a lot of ways to gain consensus. Like they might say, well, on what level from one to 10, how badly do you want to paint it bright red? And we go, well, kind of a two. And they go, well, we're kind of at a 10 to leave it the same. Okay, 
then at that point I go, okay, listen, that's important to those guys. It's not that important to me. I can let it go. And I can be in full and 100% consensus. And so when we leave that room, you will never know that I wanted to paint this room bright red. In fact, you're going to go home today not knowing if this is an example (laughs) or if I really wanted to do it. Because here's the thing. When we come out of that room, you're never going to hear a word from any of us that we disagreed. It's just not important. We're going to come out in full and 100% consensus, and I'm going to support the idea of keeping this room the same no matter what, and I'm not going to talk to a one of you about how I would have loved to paint it red. I'm not going to say to one single person, man, you know, I try to get those guys to paint it red, but they wouldn't do it. Wouldn't that be cool? Come along with me. You should do that. Listen, folks, that is a whisper to Satan to say, come on into our church. Come on in, tear us apart. And you, if you've been around churches very long, you've heard all the horror stories about churches dividing and breaking apart. Uh, they call it accidental church planting, but it's really churches splitting because we can't agree on the color of carpet. We can't agree on whether or not to have VBS again this year. So we're just going to take our ball and go home and we'll go over here and start a new church that'll have VBS every year. Folks, there's nothing uh, that excites Satan more than to divide, a, to, to divide up a church And so what Paul's saying here to these folks is, listen, I know you're not going to agree on everything. In fact, as we talk here, you may have, you may prefer uh, to have a relationship with one leader over another leader. You may connect with one leader more than another leader. But what Paul's saying is, listen, folks, you got to be in the same mind and the same judgment. You got to have the same view of the big world. And you got to stay in consensus about things. That's critical. The second thing Paul says is that Christ is superior to leaders. Christ is superior to leaders. Look at verses 11 through 13. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, Well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's received this report, and we don't know exactly how he got the report, but he's received this report that the church is divisive over which leader they're following. And the church is actually broken into factions now. This group is saying, well, we're following this guy. And these are saying, well, we're following this guy. And and at this point, uh, now we're going to see later in the book that Paul uh, encourages leaders to not do things that are divisive. But right here, he puts no emphasis on the behavior of the leaders at all. He's not saying, leaders, you've been dividing people. You've been getting them to be on your side or whatever. He's saying, listen, some of you, this, is, this is just on the followers. You guys are choosing sides when there's not even a side. Paul's not suggesting that the leaders are doing anything to stir this up. They're not asking for or you know, demanding some kind of weird loyalty. The people themselves are suggesting this, and it's causing divisions. Now, Paul's answer for this is simple and obvious yet he feels like it still needs to be said. And I love the way he does this. He gives this in a form of questions that are pretty obvious. Is Christ divided? The obvious answer is no. Did Paul die for you? The obvious answer is no. Were you baptized into Paul? The obvious answer is no. Paul is telling them here, listen, 
Follow Christ together, completely. He's the only one to follow. Listen, uh, uh, we as pastors here, we're nothing special. We're people just like you that have got a calling on our lives. Uh, But listen, if you begin to follow one of us, you're going to go the wrong way. And you're going to wind up being disappointed at some point. Because we're just human beings that mess up just like you do. Okay, but Jesus is the one to follow. And by the way, if we ever start to point to ourselves instead of the cross, you need to run from this church. You know, or, you know, send us out of town on a rail, something, you know. Now, you might wonder, why did he, why did he throw in Christ with this? Isn't it the right thing to say we follow Christ? Why were they involved? Because what was happening here, there were some that were following Christ. But listen carefully. Sometimes, even when you're right, you're wrong. Here's why. Because some were saying, well, we, we follow Apollos. Well, we, we follow Paul. And there were others saying, well, guys, we follow Christ himself. So there's a little bit of pride in this. There's a little bit of, of conceit in being right and knowing you're right. Is that the right theological thing to say? Of course it is. We should follow Christ. But when you say, well, you guys go ahead and follow your buddy Apollos. You guys go ahead and follow your buddy Paul. You guys go ahead and follow your buddy Peter. Ha, I am going to follow Christ. There's a, there's a little conceit in that. Okay, We need to be careful, folks, that even when we're right, we are right with a loving, caring, kind heart. It's not about somehow I now am elevated above everybody else because I'm the right one. As soon as we do that, being right has been done in a wrong way. Let's try our best to be right theologically and be right about our view of it and how God should help us to communicate it to others. Paul is making the case that they were all saved by Christ and Christ alone. You shouldn't be following anybody. Now, like I said, you might say, well, I, I kind of connect with Pastor John a little better than Pastor Michael, and we kind of have the same personality, and we connect, or maybe you connect with Pastor Derek. It's fine to do that, okay? Uh, there's no problem with that. But once you begin to say, I'm only going to come to church when Pastor Michael preaches, and when those other guys preach, I'm not coming. Or, or I'm only going to go to a community group that Pastor Derek preaches, because he's the only one that really has got his stuff together. Those other guys are knuckleheads. When you begin to do that and follow one person, um, you know, it, it's not good, folks. That, that's, a, that's a danger signal, okay? Your elders at this church are in complete consensus with one another. We are in complete unity. So when you either follow one of our leadership, you follow all of our leadership, or you don't follow any, Okay, so just make that clear. It's, uh, it's okay to, you know, kind of have, connect with one more than others, but it's different than if you say, I'm only going to follow one and not the others. Paul then says the preaching of the gospel is superior to baptism. Look at verses 14 through 17, the first half of 17. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I like it here that even though he's he's, uh, speaking uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's it's interesting that he kind of talks like I do. Oh, I only did those two guys. Oh, and wait, there was that that one other family, and 
I don't even know who else I did or didn't. I don't, <laughs> what you, and what he's saying there is not, that's not the point, guys. It's not the point of, of who the list is, of who got baptized by me. He's continuing to make the case that only a couple of people could even say or even claim that they were baptized by him. So there wasn't much of a case for being baptized into Paul's following. But besides that, he's really suggesting that his preaching of the gospel is far more important than who you've been baptized by anyway. While some were getting uh, kind of a status for saying, well, you know, uh, the apostle Paul himself baptized me. Oh, Peter baptized me. Paul's saying, I didn't, I didn't even baptize that many because baptism doesn't change lives. The gospel does. He said, I'm, I'm there to preach the gospel and have that change your life. I don't even know if I baptized anybody or not. Why would you even be arguing about this? Now, Paul is not suggesting that baptism is not important. That's not a critical, uh, that it's not a critical obedience to follow Jesus. It is. In fact, it's part of making disciples. He knows this. He's not in the dark. He's simply saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize that many of you because who you are baptized by is not important at all. He's also making it clear that there is an independence between baptism and salvation. He's saying, listen, I came to preach the gospel to you. I came to, to show the gospel to you and hopefully you would re respond to that and give your life to Jesus. And who you get baptized by, I could care less, really is what he's saying. Now, we try to reach this balance here at Fellowship of Grace, too. And here's how we do that. We believe baptism is very important. In fact, it's so important that you cannot be a member of this church if you are unwilling to be baptized and follow Christ's example and command. But we don't see any scriptural mandate who baptizes you. And so we allow others besides the pastoral staff to baptize. Here's what I mean. If you say, listen, you can come and be an attender here till Jesus comes. We'll love you. We'll love to see you. You can be in a community group. You can do all kinds of things and never be a member here. Okay, we don't even have to have that discussion. But when you say, hey, I want to plant my flag here. I want this to be my church. I want to be all in, which you should be in some church somewhere. Okay, once you do that, you have to be baptized. You, ha you have to know Jesus as your Savior and you have to be baptized. Why? Well, because listen, if a person comes and says, listen, guys, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not going to do what he says. I mean, I'm just flat out not going to do it. There's a, there's a problem there. There's a disconnect somewhere. We can have some long conversations about that. But we also don't see anywhere in the scripture where the Bible says only pastor elders can baptize people. Only those who've got a title get to baptize. It doesn't say that anywhere. Now, I know that we're kind of uh, in, in Baptist circles, because we are a Baptist church. I know many of you are shocked by that. You don't know that. Uh, uh, we're a we're, we're Baptist church, but in many circles of, the, of our tribe, they think that we're kind of renegades because we let other people baptize besides pastors. Like, Whoa, what? You know? Well, I'm like, show me in the scripture where only pastors baptize. It's not there. So listen, if, if, and I'm telling you, I love, I absolutely, now if you want one of us to baptize you, we'll baptize you. But I love seeing a 10-year-old kid being baptized by their parents. Man, 
You have invested in them. You have taught them to love Jesus. You have drugged them to church week after week after week after week after week. You have discipled them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours where we see them one or two hours a week. Listen, we're glad to, to, to be a part of that. But I love seeing moms or dads baptize their kids. And, and neither one of them will ever forget that. Listen, if you go to work and, and you're sharing the gospel with somebody who you work with and you lead them to Jesus and then you begin discipling them and you start meeting with them at lunch and, and teaching them how to follow Jesus and they eventually start coming here and being a part of this church and, and it's time for them to get baptized and they say, hey, I want my buddy Joe who shared the gospel with me to baptize me. <laughs> Great. Great. Man, I, I would love all of you to be in that situation. I'm, maybe that's a goal you should have this year. You know, I'm going to lead somebody to Jesus and t- teach them to follow him and get a chance to baptize them. That'd be cool. But here's the point, folks. Paul is saying here, listen, baptism's important, guys, but it's not important enough to fight over who baptized you. It's just not that important. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Only the gospel does. Only the truth about Jesus does. And then he continues this idea because then he says the cross of Christ has power that eloquent words do not have. Look back at verse 17. Uh, We'll continue in it now. The whole verse says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul continues his thought about the importance of Christ's purpose for him to preach the gospel, but he adds an important phrase here. He says, I didn't do it with eloquent uh, speech, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Keep in mind the culture that we talked about last week, if you weren't here. Uh, In the city of Corinth, it was pretty common for somebody to get up on a stump or a rock or something and begin to have this, you know, do this great oration about spiritual things. Many of them were actually introducing new gods, and people would just keep adding new gods to their uh, uh, list there. Some of these men were eloquent speakers. They could talk someone into anything. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, right? Uh, uh, Somebody who could, you know, uh, sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. You you know, I've heard that before. And, And listen, you've probably met some of these people. If you've ever uh, purchased, made a major purchase, and the moment you walk out of the place where you made it, you're like, what just happened? What did I do? Why did I buy that? I don't need that. What what happened? You've just been taken in by an eloquent speaker. And it can happen to any of us. I haven't bought anything recently, but I'm just saying it it can happen. All right? Paul will talk later about what an eloquent speaker Apollos is because uh, Apollos was really known to be this incredibly great speaker. And and there's certainly nothing wrong with being one. Uh, But what Paul's uh, saying here is, and by the way, he doesn't feel like he is. He doesn't feel like he's a very good speaker at all. And he's reminding them that it wasn't great speech and flowery words that you were saved by, but it's the truth of the cross. It's the actual message. Folks, it's not the delivery of the truth that has power. It's the truth itself. Now, this is really important for us to get. It's it's more important for you. You can't just go, oh, that's a good thought. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably true. No, no, this is something you need to embrace. This is something that needs to sear onto your brain. Here's why it's important for us to remember this. First, we don't want to develop a misloyalty to any gospel speaker because they're a great speaker. Listen, you shouldn't have any uh, like super mega loyalty above Christ to anybody who's a fantastic and an awesome speaker. Uh, now, I work hard at trying to be a good speaker. I listen to my sermons. And when I go back and listen to the ones when this church started 14 years ago, uh, if this is your first week, let me tell you, I'm a lot better than I was. I, I'm sure I got a long way to go, and I don't consider myself an eloquent speaker either. But I consider the truth that I'm sharing to be unbelievable. But, but here's the thing. Uh, Paul's saying, listen, guys, it's not the delivery of the truth. It's the truth. We can't, we can't develop any misloyalty to anybody who happens to be one of those great, great speakers. But here's the other reason we need to sear this into our brains. It needs to help us over the misguided fears that we have that our poor speaking of the gospel will not have any power. Listen, we've talked about this enough. I've been around Christians enough in my lifetime. I know that many of you in this room would love to get better at sharing the gospel with your friends and neighbors. I know you really believe in all, with all your heart that if they don't know Jesus as their Savior, they're going to die and go to a place called hell and be forever separated from God. I know you believe that. But I also know that many of you would say to yourself, I want to get better at this. I really want to get better at this because every time I think about doing it, every time I feel like there's an open door, I hear this little whisper in my head that goes, you can't do this very good. If you do this, you're going to mess it up and then they won't be open to the gospel ever. You should probably not say anything. You know, you, you're, you're not polished at this. You know, Pastor Michael gets up there and talks about it, shows you how to do it, but, but you can't do that. It'd be worse for you to mishandle it than to not do it at all. And folks, every one of those whispers comes from the pits of hell. It's Satan trying to keep you from doing what God is trying to impress you to do. Listen, there is no power in, in my speech or in your speech. You will never be polished enough. You will never be good enough. You will never be practiced enough. You will never be experienced enough to win somebody to Jesus and them get eternal life because you're just a fantastic speaker. That will never happen in your lifetime. But you know what? If you kind of bumble and fumble through the gospel and share the truth with them and they hear it and get it, it's the message, it's the truth that draws people to God. It's not us we got to get that. I mean, we've got to really get that in our minds. The smoothest, smoothness of the gospel presentation isn't what changes lives. You won't be able to change a person's life ever. But it's the truth of God that is contained inside the gospel that has the power to change lives. And it does. I want that to sear on your brain today. I want you to get that and walk away with it. I want you to remember what, remember that. See, I wasn't even eloquent just saying that. 
Listen. What brings about unity of mind and judgment? Focus on the gospel. What keeps us focused on Jesus rather than getting unfocused on leaders? Focus on the gospel. What gives us a balanced view of baptism? Important to do, but not important who did. Focus on the gospel. What's more important than flowery words and has the power to change lives? It's focus on the gospel. The biblical truth, and so you say, well, I've heard this 20 times now. What's the gospel? It's the biblical truth that we are sinners who cannot do anything to stop sinning or bridge the gap with God caused by our sin. And that God sent his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life and give it willingly on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose again from the dead three days later. And that by faith we can put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save us from our sins, give us a new life, following him, forgiven by him, in constant relationship with him, and him making us new. That is the gospel. It's the good news of God that has the power to change lives. Now, Paul might sound like there is only one answer that will unite us and keep us united. And the reason it sounds that way is because there is. There's only one thing that will keep us united going forward. And that's focus on the gospel that unites us and saves us with the power also to keep us united without divisions. Now, I remember uh, I was about 20, 21 or 22 years old, and I was in a church, and some people had gotten crossways with the pastor. He, he hadn't committed any moral sin. He wasn't preaching heresy. There was no biblical reason to do this, but they had this horrible business meeting, and it was set up a lot like this, except much bigger, and, and there was a microphone in this aisle, and there was a microphone in that aisle, and people came who had left the church over the last five years, but were still, quote, members. And they got here and they said, okay, if you, if you are for getting rid of the pastor, get in this line. And if you are against getting rid of the pastor, get in this line. And we're going to go two minutes there, two minutes here, two minutes here, two minutes here. And this went on and it went on. And by the way, you could get up three different times if you wanted to rebut something that somebody else said. And those of you who know my personality can imagine at 22, my zeal was way more uh, uh, high than my wisdom. And uh, I needed to say something. But, I, but there was something about him just like, man, this, this, is, this can't be right. This can't be godly. And so I don't even remember which line I got in, whichever one was shortest, because I didn't know who I was, I didn't know which side I was taking. So I got in line and I got up to the microphone and here I'm sitting with all these people who are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old and are, you know, really uh, excited about one of the other positions. And I'm like, guys, I, I, I don't even know the Bible that well, but this is just, this just feels wrong. This is just, I mean, there's such a feeling of evil in this. This can't be right. This can't be godly. Now you've probably heard horror stories about churches that, you know, break apart because of carpet color or who they're going to buy envelopes from or some other ridiculous reason for a church, you know, dividing. Uh, listen, we, we need to, we together need to guard against that because the more we push the darkness back in our community, 
the more the light shines, the more Satan is going to want to get in and divide this church. Now, we were only 14 years old as a church, but we've really not had too many issues with that. Now, some people have gotten crossways with different people and they've got mad and left, but we haven't had any, like, division. And I can tell you that your elder pastors will never divide. Uh, one of the key parts of being an elder here is you've got to love God's church more than you love your own opinion. And if you don't, you have no business being an elder here, ever. But folks, we need to guard against that. We're together. We don't always have to agree on every single thing but we need to love one another. We need to focus on the gospel and we need to make sure that nothing ever divides us, especially the unimportant. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word that guides us and teaches us. Father, we're so grateful for the unity that we have here at Fellowship of Grace and God, I pray that you would protect that. I pray that you would uh, just do whatever is in your power to protect us from ever having those kind of divisions. Lord, we know that we have different opinions about things, and we'll continue to do that. But God, help those different opinions to never uh, keep us uh, from being focused on the important things, meaning the gospel, the cross, salvation through your son, Jesus. Father, if there's anybody here who hasn't yet put their faith in you, if they haven't crossed that line of faith, I pray that they would talk to somebody today, that they would put their faith and trust in you today before they leave, that we would be able to help them on their spiritual journey. God, we thank you uh, for even this example of the uh, church at Corinth, that we might learn from it, that we might stay focused on you and see you do great things in us and through us because we are sold out uh, to what you tell us to do and who you tell us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.